Hello there. Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and it's great to be with you again today to bring you our fourth episode of season two. In this episode, our host Vis is sitting down with Sanaya Kisti, the Chief Strategy Officer at Beyond Zero Emissions, or BZE. BZE is an independent Australian think tank, and their solutions are trying to help accelerate Australia towards a prosperous zero emissions economy. In this episode, Sanaya is sharing her journey into the sustainability space, which I think will be really insightful for people who want to get into sustainability and are currently studying or working in politics or law, as she has completed a Bachelor of Politics in International Relations, and then she went on to do a Juris Doctor. Sanaya doesn't practice law, but she uses those skills and knowledge to help give her a unique perspective in her current role. Sanaya shares her passion for justice and the pathway that BZE is taking to help Australia care for its workers as they transition to a more renewable energy future. Here's episode four of season two with Sanaya Kissi. Hey everyone, welcome to the Greenfluence podcast. Uh, today we have Sanaya, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, wishing you a warm welcome, Sanaya. Thanks, Fizz. Lovely to be here. Amazing. And I think for all our listeners, it's really interesting. So I met Sanaya through the Sustainable Finance Library, and it was and it's called LTORM. And we had a chat then, and we kept in touch on LinkedIn and Really excited um, for this episode because Sanaya has extensive experience in law, in politics, and also in sustainability. So looking forward to hearing all your insights. So I want to go back a bit. So you graduated with a, with a bachelor's degree in arts, with one of your majors being international relations and also politics. And then you went on to pursue a JD. Um, I just wanted to understand what got you interested in those varying fields of studies and how has that shaped you to be the professional you are today? Reflecting on this question, I couldn't come up with quite a straight answer, but I think going quite deep, it would be that politics has always had an impact on my life. It's always been around me and the people, many of my family members growing up have had a strong passion, if not a sort of jail or not jail kind of conviction in terms of politics. So my maternal grandfather, who I grew up with, um, he was a union leader in the Indian Central Railways and he was a freedom fighter. He was jailed many times. My paternal grandfather was a magistrate and he lived off a very, very meagerly salary and was one of the very few people around um, who wasn't accepting bribes and was very, very much concerned with justice. Um, and then looking into my closer family, my dad was a member of the ALP for most of my life. And even when he left, it was because of the inhumane treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. My mom is a psychologist and a community kind of very, very community minded person. She's involved with the Welcome to Eltham group um, in Eltham, which welcomed a group of Syrian refugees there a few years ago. And my sister, my sister um, has her own way of expressing her activism. When she was in high school, she put a poster of a devil on a boy's locker because he was being racist to another classmate. 
Um, and she also painted a giant sorry in a very public place uh, when she was in her early 20s and the Australian government refused to apologise for the stolen generation. So I guess it's just been around me that politics is a part of your life and so I think it was a pretty natural fit for me to choose that path. And law kind of came at the end of my bachelor's when I was like, what do I want to do next? What do I want to learn? I was never really sure that I wanted to be a lawyer and I didn't I didn't um, go into practice, but I was pretty sure that law was the discipline that I wanted to go down. And how that's all connected to my professional life, I think, I think all of those things have really informed how I am in the workplace and the culture that I want to bring as a leader in the workplace as well, just really thinking about the people around you and acting with kindness and conviction. Seems like your family had a very strong sense of social justice and fighting for various groups and just making sure that people had a level playing field. And it seems like your background actually reflects that. And I think you brought up a really interesting point about um, the idea of kindness and um, just like how that law background has shaped um, what you are, what you've been doing. And I know like you've done a lot of work with B Corps, things like that. So um, and obviously the idea of purpose and profit is so important. Um, so like, how exactly did you get into that sort of stage and and how does like law link to what you're doing now which is more sustainability focused i always saw law as a tool um it's kind of the tool that you're going to use as a lever for change and i was really interested in understanding how that tool worked um and i think ultimately it is kind of the the yardstick by which we measure what is acceptable in society um and how that feeds into my sustainability work I would say on face value it doesn't but what really strongly has fed throughout my career after law school was the discipline itself and thinking critically about what might be on a page and what to be looking for um and having a I guess I guess it takes you to a real risk mindset you really think about the logical consequence of of actions and that is very useful in the work that I'm doing today, particularly considering the stakeholders that we engage with in government and industry, really thinking through what what the barriers are for them to take action. And I think that idea of critical thinking is so important because we can't rely on governments to solve the climate crisis. I think in recent times, we've seen um, a lot of the focus being on private companies and the obligation, I guess, to wider society as well as making a profit, um, especially now with the whole um, with the whole take of a bit of AGL as well, like that's really come to the fore. And I think like in the an article you wrote about the National Climate Energy Summit in 2020, you actually mentioned how um, we can't be reliant on the law to help us solve the, to help us solve the climate crisis. Um, is there like from a legal perspective, is there a way that the law can become more dynamic and allow us to respond to urgent matters to solve the crisis and to solve and to solve the problems we have in that space? Well, I would start by saying that I am no expert since I'm not a practicing lawyer, but what I can say is I might have been quick to have that opinion because there there have been some cases in recent years that have shown that the law can be a really effective tool for change. And the one that springs to mind most clearly is the McVeigh and Rest case against the superannuation fund. Um, that Yeah, that case went for two years and settled out of court and it, the basis of it was that REST owed um, McVeigh a higher duty in its trustee duties to be thinking critically and factoring in climate risk. And it settled out of court 
interestingly, even though it settled out of court, it had a huge impact on the sector and super funds really started to kind of get their get it together and think about what they needed to do. But it also had a ripple effect on other boards and directors thinking about what would happen if a similar case were run for director's duty un- under the Corps Act. So I think that's a really good example of how a case that kind of like is about this can have an effect that is about that wide. And although it takes a couple of years, so does a lot of change in this sector. So it's not it's not as fast as government policy is an intervention, but it is it does have a really, really huge effect when it's effective. So I would say that my earlier self was maybe a bit too quick to think about it and I'm in awe of the amazing lawyers that are working in the sector at the moment thinking about how they can create change. Yeah, that's super interesting because I've been reading a bit on the idea of fiduciary duty and how that's changing over time. And you see like a lot of, like I've seen quite a few cases where there's a lot of climate change litigation where um, say if a company breaches their duty, they can be taken to court. And I think it's just put like everyone on notice. Um, So yeah, that's like super interesting. Is that something that you follow a lot, like climate change litigation and things like that? It's definitely something that I've got my eye on because it's getting more and more interesting, Um, not just because it's having an impact, but also just the, the legal technicalities. I think what's really interesting about it is that there are a lot of lawyers that are starting to think outside the box and tackling acts like the Corporations Act from 2001 and thinking about how they can use it creatively to really push the private sector in a different direction. So I am following it. Uh, the, the law nerd in me is definitely following it just as much as the sustainability professional. What would be the sort of implications with this whole proposed takeover um, with Mike Cannon-Brooks and AGL and things like that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, just out of curiosity. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a really interesting example of the reason why we need to make sure that there are plans in place and that governments are coordinating those plans to ensure just transitions for workers. Because the, you know, the announcement of the Araring coal power station closing in 2025. Um, it puts those workers and families on notice that they've got a couple of years left. And it means that governments really need to make sure, and the private sector as well, that there is a plan in place for where those people are going to go, what their futures are going to look like. So I think that I wouldn't I wouldn't go with the legal angle for that particular instance. I would really focus on what it says about where things are at in terms of the government and the private sector, making yeah. sure that there are plans because the regions like the Hunter you know, there are regions like that all around Australia and we really need to make sure that as this change happens faster and faster than anyone could have predicted, that people aren't left behind. Awesome. Yeah, definitely, I guess, one to look into. Um, I know that I've been looking at the AFR a fair bit and, and seeing what's happening with that. And I just think, like, it could set the precedent for a lot more other cases where you've got, like, high net worth individuals and asset managers trying to make a change. Um, and I think it's good to see that someone who's so well off um, is trying to do something um, in this sort of field and believes in renewables. Um, So sort of just, I guess, changing tact a bit. So the early part of your career, um, would I be right in saying that wasn't like your, I guess your career wasn't hugely focused on sustainability? Yeah, you would, you would be right in saying that. Okay, cool. Just wanted to clarify. And I guess it wasn't until 2019 that you made that transition when you worked in B Corp. And that's something that I think it's like I find very interesting, the whole idea of, um, I guess, looking at profit and purpose and how can we align both and really sort of 
making it big in Australia. So like, how did you find that transition and what was your experience like at B Corp? And maybe give our audience a perspective on what a B Corp is. A B Corp is a company that, uh, so very specifically, is a for-profit company um, that commits to considering purpose in, well, enshrining purpose in its governance structure and measuring and managing and improving its impact. So the B Corp certification is run by B Lab, which is a global not-for-profit. And in Australia, the local arm is B Lab Australia New Zealand, which is the organisation that I worked for. Um, And that organisation administers the certification. And the certification covers a few different impact areas. For example, how well you treat your employees, um, the community, your environmental impact, your governance. Um, It really is a holistic assessment in comparison to some other certifications that focus on one particular niche area. B Corp is quite expansive. Um, And to achieve certification, you have to get a minimum of 80 points out of, I think it's 200 from memory. Um, And the average company gets about 50. So you can see that there's quite a bit of a space and a gap to improve where you're at to be able to get certification. And um, some notable B Corps, Patagonia, Keep Cup. Um, there are many in Australia who gives a crap. Um, they're, they're the kind of models of companies that are coming through. But there's also some really big companies out there that are taking on the certification. Kathmandu was certified while I was at B Lab. Um, and so you can kind of see that the, the trend is that companies really want this certification, not just consumer-facing companies, but companies that are working in consulting because they want to be more attractive in, in the marketplace for workers. Um, and it's a stamp that kind of says we commit to really thinking about our impact across these sectors um, and to improving because you have to recertify each every three years and the standards just go up so that you're always moving along with society. My work at B-Lab really focused on the governance angle. Um, so I was thinking about how you can legally embed purpose into um, a company in Australia. So in the US, they have a very different system where they have different company types. In Australia, we really don't have that. Um, And we lent into the idea that you can include a clause in your constitution that says that you commit to creating an impact and also essentially taking into account your stakeholders' interests um, when you make decisions. So that idea of profit and purpose really go hand in hand for B Corp. That's what it comes down to. And I think that's why there is such a huge trend at the moment. And I knew that mm. I know that the, the queue for B Lab is absolutely mind boggling even now when I think about hearing how many B Corps there are in, in the region as compared to a couple of years ago while I was there. It's it's pretty impressive that that trend has continued. That's awesome. It seems like you left a great legacy then. <laughs> It's an amazing team in Australia yep. and New Zealand, and yep. um, they've just gone from strength to strength. I think that's really amazing to see, especially now. Like, I always think, how can we quant? I guess quantify impact is not exactly what you were doing, but how can we sort of measure impact and how can we sort of measure purpose? And um, yeah, I, I think that's really cool because this was such a new model of thinking um, and a new model of integration. Was it very hard to sort of explain the concept of the B Corp to other people? Was there any drawback and what were some of the challenges you faced? At the time when I came to an Australia, there came to B Lab Australia New Zealand, there wasn't as much consumer facing recognition for what a B Corp was or what the certification, there's a B in a circle, what that actually means if you see it on a packaging or whatever. 
And so there was a bit of work to explain that when we were talking to people, particularly in what I was focusing on at the governance level. Um, But I think there have been some amazing campaigns that the B-Lab and B Corp teams have run to really get the word out about the brand. And and the best way to do that is through the B Corps themselves and really educating whoever they're dealing with, whether it's clients or consumers, um, into understanding what the certification means. And there's been really successful campaigns in Australia and around the world to do that. So that's where I would say, at, like in the US, it's very well known because it's been there for so long. Um, the In Europe is a pretty old market as well. So I think over time, we'll see more brand recognition for what it means in Australia. Yeah, it'll be really exciting to see the growth in the next few years, um, especially as well as the ESG and the impact industry, I guess, really starts to take off. So obviously, I can tell Sanai, you have quite a bit of passion for this field. Did you ever wonder or do you ever wonder if you would ever stop feeling the passion for this field? Like, because I guess all jobs have less glamorous aspects of it. Not yet. Uh, I honestly have to say, I think that my current job is my dream role. I feel very, very lucky. I get to work with a super talented team and an amazing leader who is smart and strategic um, beyond, you know, anyone's wildest dreams. and the work is constantly engaging and it's constantly changing and the external environment's changing. So what we are doing in response changes too. So I feel very lucky in this role. And I think that as the as the wave gets higher, the tide comes in, whatever saying you want to use, um, I'm never good with sayings, it's only going to get more exciting because there's going to be more people who come into the sector from all, all kind of walks of life that have the same passion. Yeah, like I guess as, as the tide rises. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> Just throw that on the spot. But um, no, I did want to talk a lot about Beyond Zero Emissions and your role is Chief Strategy Officer. And when I think strategy, I think very high level, like looking at business plans, looking at reports, talking to stakeholders. Um, just wanted to get a better understanding of what exactly you do in your role. I know that's very broad, but. No, no, that's completely fair. Uh, it changes week on week. So I um, I lead our government engagement. So I work with our regionally based staff as well um, who lead government engagement in their respective areas as well as industry and stake- other stakeholder engagement. So that's kind of like bread and butter in terms of what I do day to day. It's team management, making sure that we are acting with as efficiently as we can with resources that we've got and as strategically as we can to make an impact. Um, A lot of my role is coordinating with partners. We are firm believers in collaboration and not wanting to duplicate efforts. We definitely think that considering that so many of us have shared goals, it is important to work together to achieve them. So a lot of my week I will spend on the phone to close collaborators talking about information they've got and information we've got and what we might want to do in the research space um, and any other areas. So that's a very big part of my role. Fundraising, we're a not-for-profit. We're an independent um, think tank. So we have, we're funded entirely by philanthropy. So a lot of my role is um, making sure that donors are aware of what we're doing and working with them. And um, some of them work really closely with us and have their own strategies that they're executing and, and we're part of that. So that's a really wonderful part of my job as well. Um, and then there's the business, running the business. So there's a lot of um, operational uh, management things that I do as well, making sure that 
again, we have the resources to execute on our goals and making sure that everyone's happy and, and safe at work. That's awesome. It seems like you wear many hats and I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And then the other thing that BZE that I believe you guys focus on is how businesses and industries are able to set their net zero goals. And that's obviously like a huge topic with like a lot of companies setting goals for 2040, 2050. So what is the competitive advantage that BZE has over other consultants or companies that have, an, that have in-house teams? Um, what's your competitive advantage? Because we are an independent think tank funded by philanthropy, we are not operating in the same space as commercial consultancies or government. We really come in to fill a gap where there might be one, whether that is some kind of barrier that industry is facing to decarbonizing particular production or whatever it might be. Um, and we will fill that gap with our research and projects. Um, so we really don't consider ourselves at all in competition with commercial consultancies. In fact, we work with them um, and we think that that is really important. So we, we're we not doing that kind of work and if we were, we would be in the wrong game. Um, we, we're really aiming to be the, the research and the backbone of whatever it is that those consultancies want to implement with their clients. Um, and that's why we work with them. We will often brief them. We will speak to them about um, whatever it might be if they're putting in a big tender for a government bid um, and support them to make sure that it is as ambitious and technically accurate as it can be. Yeah, I think it's really good. It goes back to the idea of collaboration, I guess, that you were mentioning. And I guess like you mentioned a point about in terms of setting goals, like how do you go about, I guess, setting a goal that is meant to be achieved in 20, 30 years time? It seems it seems so far away, right? Like. How do you go about that process? Absolutely, it is. Um, so we we have organizational strategies. We have strategic plans that um, last for three years and they're sort of our guiding light. By the end of these three years, we want to achieve these things. And from there, we will work out our annual um, project goals and implementation plans for how we want to do sort of the, the I guess, like the objectives and key results of each of those projects to achieve those higher order goals. The way that we think about them is our strategic plan at the moment, the North Star, is what is going to rapidly reduce emissions in the first half of this decade. So what can we do? Where are the biggest emission reduction opportunities and how we can communicate them to communities that are going to be affected? And that means making sure that there are solutions. So BZE's remit is that we are entirely focused on solutions and we really believe that in order to make this transition well, Australia has to prosper through it. So we want to make sure that communities aren't left behind. Um, so how we develop our kind of project goals out of that is thinking about, well, what, what size of the emissions could this potentially reduce, um, like in this particular sector, this particular project, and also what opportunities does it unlock? So um, some of our current projects at the moment we're really focused on because of the opportunities for bringing large-scale renewables online and unlocking new industries. That's how we think about things. How, how do you really think about the solution that you want but make sure that it's going to work in the communities that are affected by this change? That's awesome. So it's really pinpointing it and really narrowing it down into specific communities. I guess like that idea of focus on solutions so I think that was key in two of your programs, the Million Jobs Plan and, re and the Repowering Manufacturing Plan. Why did you choose those two areas out of all the potential ones that you could have chosen? Mm, great question. 
So I think it's probably helpful to give you a bit of background on the Million yeah. Jobs Plan. So that report um, we released in June 2020, so just as the pandemic was kind of three months in and we had very big plans. It was before I, I joined BZE in August of that year, but we had really big plans about what we were going to do that year. And then the pandemic hit and we had to rethink them. So we knew that there was going to be a big stimulus announcement in the federal budget and we thought about what could we do, what could our research contribute to shape where those announcements go. Um, so we set up the Million Jobs Plan, which is a chapter by chapter across every sector of the economy, talking about the opportunities to create uh, jobs in those sectors over the next five years. Um, and one of those chapters was manufacturing. Manufacturing is very interesting and it has a huge economic opportunity for Australia. And one of our recommendations in that chapter was that we establish renewable energy industrial precincts, which are precincts is probably, it kind of gives you the sense that it might be on a smaller scale. These are like regions where you can set up big manufacturing and industrial hubs with existing infrastructure. So places like the Hunter and Gladstone, um, Geelong, these kinds of places where the infrastructure exists, but you really want to figure out what the plan is going to look like for new low carbon and zero emission industries. Um, so the reason that we have been focusing on manufacturing so much is because of that potential economic multiplier effect that it has. Um, there's really two things. One, we're going to need different kinds of equipment technology, infrastructure. So, for example, we're going to need electrolyzers and electric arc furnaces in order to decarbonize these kinds of sectors. We want to be making those things onshore because we have a lot of the components that are required to make them. And if we're not making them onshore, then we're going to be importing them. So, if we make them onshore, we can establish new sectors and new jobs can be created because we have such available access to low-cost renewable energy. So if you do that, you also have the opportunity of that multiplier effect where you can create indirect jobs from manufacturing. So there's a huge economic benefit to doing it, which is why we've focused so much on manufacturing and repowering manufacturing with renewables because the opportunity to bring large-scale renewables online and create these kinds of precincts around the country is just, yeah, it would be such a win for the regions. Yeah, for sure, because I think a lot of, the arguments in terms of why we should, I guess, continue with fossil fuels is more about the economic sort of argument. Like a lot of people are going to lose jobs, but then if we create more jobs through these precincts, then it's even better and it's cleaner, it's better for the environment. So um, yeah, I think that's awesome. And I guess like within the team at BZE, it's, it seems like, a, like everyone there has a lot of passion for what they do and is keen to like, you know, make Australia more renewable and a better place. So I wanted to get an understanding as a leader um, in terms of how you manage teams, how you manage dealing with people from like different study backgrounds or, or people with different personalities and how do you sort of lead them and inspire them to achieve the end goal? Yeah, our senior leadership team really places an emphasis, emphasis on diversity in the workplace and diversity of experience, skills, age, class ethnic and cultural background, gender diversity, whatever it might be, it's really front of mind in our recruitment, um, but we are far from perfect. So I would say that we've we've got a long way to go and we know that and we really want to do better to make sure that our workplace reflects 
what the typical Australian society looks like. Um, and what's really interesting, I think, about having a place where we do have a more diverse team, it's one of the most diverse workplaces that I've worked in, um, is that you you get the space to be very innovative and that's something that we really pride ourselves on at BZE is just how ambitious we can get while being pragmatic to our solutions. Um, and when you get a bunch of people in the room who have different skill sets and different experiences, you know, you have a comms person, you have a researcher, you have someone who specialises in stakeholder engagement with industry, um, you come up with these amazing solutions. And it's really a multidisciplinary approach to thinking about problems. Um, but of course, disagreements are going to arise. And I think as long as staff know and trust each other and they understand what their role is, what their responsibilities are, and that we have shared priorities, you can work through those disagreements pretty well. And where it falls down is often where that hasn't been clear. That's also especially important because I'm guessing some of your team will be working remotely as well. And I guess with the pandemic and things like that, like that sort of communication is even more important, especially when you guys may not be in the office or may not be on site. Absolutely. And we've got, I think we're hitting nearly 50% of the team is outside of Victoria. So it is a remote team. We will always be remote because we've prioritised making sure that we have staff in the regions that we're working in. Um, and it is really important to be able to build strong staff cultures in that environment. Um, but we're very, very excited because we're actually having a staff retreat in March, all things going well with COVID. Um, so bringing people together, some people who have been working together for 18 months or more who've never met. Um, so we're very excited about that. Your role obviously involves a huge intersection between sustainability and also politics. And you would be talking to like a lot of um, federal governments, sorry, I guess you were talking to the federal government and state governments and all these leaders um, who may not have the same view as you in terms of the climate policy, things like that. And given like climate policy is probably the biggest, is it probably the, it's probably the biggest talking point in Australian politics. How do you go about sort of navigating that landscape when you're talking to all these senior figures? We stick to what we know. So we know that most Australians want big and fast action to take advantage of the economic opportunities that are presented by taking stronger action on climate. Um, and we work with companies that tell us this all the time. So, for example, 3ME um, in the Hunter Valley is a supplier of electric mining vehicles to different mines in the Hunter Valley, and they are slowly but surely very well trans trans transferring their truck fleets over to electric vehicles. Um, they can see a market opportunity to not just supply, be in the supply chain for mining, but also other sectors. And I think that is the message that we talk about so often. We talk about what we know is happening in industry and what we can do, governments can do to accelerate that action and ensure that we're realising these opportunities. So our message doesn't doesn't change. We are a non-partisan think tank and we stick to what we know. So that is making sure we are telling the stories of the industries and innovators that are already doing this work. That's that's amazing. Um, and then, yeah, we're just going to go to the speed round questions now. So they're going to be quick and fast. Are you ready, Sanaya? I am ready. Let's go. So firstly, what is the best piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self? It would be be kinder to yourself. Don't be in such a rush and enjoy the ride. Very nice. Very good. 
Um, and then the next question is something that obviously is very close to what you do. How do we continue to reduce fossil fuel production and achieve climate targets? So this is exactly what I was talking about earlier. Governments, industries and communities need to plan for just transitions for the workers on the ground. And we need to make those plans early. We need to take this seriously because action is happening faster than anyone could have expected. Um, so that really needs to happen. And communities need to see tangible examples of projects that are delivering new low-carbon products in zero-emission industries. Next question. What is the biggest clean energy trend for us to look out for? Ooh, um, that is a great question. I think there's a lot of buzz around hydrogen at the moment. And I say hydrogen, I mean specifically renewable hydrogen. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about the price that it takes to get there um, and the reason why really we shouldn't be thinking about blue hydrogen, but green is the future and we're already seeing that trend in Europe. Yeah, for sure. We actually had someone on our podcast who actually works in the green hydrogen space. I think a lot of people now are very inspired to move into sustainability and there are a lot of lawyers who want to get into the field. So what advice would you give to a young professional who wants to get into this space? I would say don't wait, jump on it now because there are so many job opportunities that are coming up across amazing sectors, public, private, and the not-for-profit sector, including several upcoming opportunities at BZE. So don't wait, get into it because you won't regret it. Awesome. I see you made a plug for VC there. Got to. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, last question. What are, your, what are your book recommendations and who are some people to follow in the space? Okay, so... Book recommendations, I would say, if you don't know anything about why climate has been so ideological, um, you should read Madlands by Anna Rose. Uh, it's It was written a while ago, but the theories behind it and the amazing depth that she goes into is really wonderful. Yeah. Um, to broaden the way that you think and to really challenge how you're thinking about this and the solutions behind it, I would recommend Sand Talk by Tyson Yonker Porter. Um, and for the technical nerds, I would have two recommendations. One would be the Million Jobs Plan by BZD, obviously, um, because it is a wonderful sector-by-sector -sector play of what we can do to really realise our economic opportunities. And two would be Superpower by Ross Garneau. And Ross Garneau actually titled Superpower after he launched uh, our report by Renewable Energy Superpower with the report title. That's huge. Definitely a, quite a bit of reading um, for us to get into, so... Yeah, I think that's that's really good. Cool. I think this brings a wrap to our episode. So thanks so much, Sanaya. I think we got a lot of insight about your amazing career and how that's really taken you through, I guess, so many fields. And it, it ended up with you finding your passion in sustainability. And I think like being involved in a think tank and looking at high-level problems, um, it's, just, it's just so exciting to see the way that BZE is shaping um, Australian climate policy, the economy and also I guess our wider society so um, I really commend you guys on the awesome work that you've been doing um, yeah and I think our our listeners would have got a lot from this podcast and looking forward to seeing all your amazing work at BZE so thank you very much thank you and thank you to um, you and Adriana for inviting me to be part of the podcast it was lovely to chat to you no worries it's our pleasure What did you think of the chat with Sanaya? Personally, as a law grad myself, 
I found it insightful to hear about her journey into such an active role in tackling climate change. It was also really encouraging to hear about the work BZE is doing. Creating a renewable energy future is feeling more and more tangible. If you'd like to connect with Sanaya, please find her on LinkedIn. And to learn more about BZE, check out their LinkedIn social media pages and websites for more. All those links will be in the show notes. We'd also love to hear from you here at Greenfluence, so please join us on Facebook and LinkedIn to be part of our Greenfluence community. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes, and we'd appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a comment. It really means a lot. Thank you for joining me for this episode, and I hope you have a fantastic day, and I'll catch you in the next one. Oh, 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 o